0: This is Josh Korda of Dharma Punks New York. My Buddhist pastoral work is supported by donations only. If you'd like to help, Venmo Dharma Punks NYC or use the PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I hope you enjoy this podcast and thanks for your support. easy to assume that a happy life and a meaningful life share the same qualities, and they do share some qualities in common, such as close connection to the loved. Um, but the research of Roy Bowmeister, Kathleen Bowes, Jennifer Aker, Emily Garbinski, they've done a bunch of research, into uh, the uh, role of a meaningful life, and they found some key distinctions between happiness and meaning and purpose. Attaining health, well-being, and ease in life is related to happiness, but it's not actually related to finding meaning or purpose in life. You can have achieved all of your basic wants, and still not, and you can be quite happy about that, but you probably won't still find your life as imbued with meaning. Happiness is connected to the emotional benefits one accrues from relationships and attachments, but meaning is actually related to what we give to others, not what we accrue from them. So you can get meaning from a relationship where you're not getting a lot of benefits from it, but you are in some way benefiting the others. Meaningful life can be stressful uh, and very often unhappy. So, for example, a teacher at an inner-city school, so long as they sense that their work is helping their students, they can be completely worn down by having 40 kids in a classroom. They can be underpaid. They can be constantly facing an administrative uphill battle. And yet, throughout all that, the drudgery at times of commuting and dealing with bureaucracy, yet they'll still have a very meaningful life. Another classic example, if you were a political prisoner and locked up behind bars, you probably wouldn't be very happy, but your life would have meaning to it. Uh, It's easier to actuate happiness than it is to actuate a sense of meaning for someone. If someone uh, does hasn't been happy, you could celebrate that person. You could uh, go with them to enjoy uh, activities that they really enjoy, and it, you would b- raise their self-reported baseline happiness um, levels, but it wouldn't create a sense of meaning in their life. Reflecting on meaningful experiences affects, a- a significant degree of psychological well-being and immune function in chronically ill patients, but reflecting on happiness doesn't. So actually, if you want to instill a greater sense of resilience in someone, uh, talk about things that give their life meaning rather than things that bring about happiness. And again, we'll talk about what meaning is and how it's derived. So um, not only does reflecting on what provides meaning uh, offer us resilience, according to a couple of studies, uh, making sense by Osworth and Chambers and social relationships, social, psychological, and existential well-being and patience, excuse me, by Cavers, but um, if someone has an inability to discern sources of joy and meaning in their life both will create anhedonia. So if you don't, either one, if you don't have a great deal of happiness or if you can't note what gives your life meaning, depression is a very likely bedfellow. There's different regions of the brain that distinguish happiness from meaning. Happiness is organized by the dopamine secretion of the ventral tegmental nuclei it's a reward for raising our tribal status for meeting our core survival needs for food, shelter, clothing, self-reliance, etc. so the happy happiness rewards are very fast. they're very strong. whereas meaning, while it also has dopaminergic qualities to it, it's far less fast and has different regions. Uh, ventral it's associated with sustained ventral medial act, ventral striatum activation which contain which essentially links various regions of the brain that link social acts to beneficial social acts to mood boosts resonance and a sense of purpose Um It also uses a region in the temporal parietal, if I recall, that imbues experience with a sense of resonance and depth. It should be most focused on is that meaning is primarily an emotional felt state and that it uses bottom-up circuits rather than top-down. It's not cognitive. It's far more a felt, in, in many ways, right brain, or at least bilateral, but probably right brain feature in the sense that one, it's uh, something that arises slowly. It's very difficult to put it into words, what gives our life meaning. Um, and thinking our way into meaning very rarely works. You can give someone reasons to be happy, but giving them reasons to feel meaningful is far less likely to succeed. The processes that create a sense of meaning are not primarily cognitive. They are associative, experiential. They're more, or at least as much, right hemispheric and bottom-up rather than left hemispheric and top-down To get a sense of or to accrue a sense of meaning means we have to directly confront the evidence of our acts being of benefit. It can't be an intellectual thing. For example, so somebody who's an administrator in a school, they might be able to tell themselves, oh, my work is of great benefit because I'm keeping a school going and that's where pupils learn, that person will experience much less sense of, uh, will have a far less degree of purpose accrued than somebody who's a teacher who directly sees a student benefiting from their actions. So it's because associative right brain uh, circuitry is far more visual than it is based on ideas so it's very difficult to create a experience of meaning unless we actually see witness our you know uh, the benefits of our actions as we do them so in essence The key not not necessarily is to get another job, but it's to find a way for whatever job we have that in some way you get to directly see how your work is benefiting others. So let's look at some key insights into uh, why having a meaningful life today or feeling in one's life as meaningful might be more challenging than perhaps in previous times. So there was a great um, German sociologist named Max Weber, who I had to read in college. I didn't remember it being particularly easy, but some of his basic insights stuck with me. And one of those was that Weber believed that for a long time, meaningful spiritual endeavor was linked for most people with a sense of a calling in life, a calling that one's life was instilled with meaning that from the faith that our work was the work, our job, our livelihood, the things we did to make bread uh, was in some way assigned by God. Um, So when people chose a profession, when people engaged in their livelihood, they didn't just believe it was for them. They believed that in some way it was a calling that was ordained by a higher power. And in such a way, it motivated and instilled even the most mundane behaviors in one's job with a sense of freshness and import and resonance. So for Weber, it was very important for meaning that there was a sense of a spiritual transcendent quality. In what we do. Weber contrasted the meaning that we get from a secular meaning of work um, from the the aspirations of monks, nuns, and renunciates who sought meaning by transcending worldly concerns. And Weber was very concerned that secularization capitalism and post-industrial cultures and the change that was going on at the turn of the 20th century when he did the bulk of his work. He believed that uh, this shift to emphasizing that work was a way to provide people with capital so that they could meet their material needs, emptied work out of the sense of it being a calling Work was no longer something that was spiritually ordained. It was an activity that was in no way tied to anything transcendent. It was simply an activity that helped us pay the bills. And in so doing, it emptied our life out of a significant source of meaning. Now, another great thinker from a little bit after uh, Max Weber, another German. I'm on a German kick today, Uh, Martin Heidegger, great um, existentialist philosopher. Heidegger noted that meaning is a direct result of living towards death in a sense, a constant awareness of one's mortality. It was up until the 19th century that death was everywhere in culture. We would die at home of diseases, bodies would be visible very often on streets. Death wasn't hidden from the population, and the imminence of death therefore required ongoing consideration. And when you live in a constant awareness of our, of our mortality, the fact that we can be uh, extinguished uh, without uh, any warning, it demands that we ask a question, uh, which is, how do I want to be remembered? Or what of my life will last beyond me? And that very question is the fundamental articulation of concerns of meaning. What will have made this brief existence a reason for being? what will have given it some form of deeper merit or something. Of course, given this insight that being confronted with one's mortality directly leads to a reflection on what is meaningful in life, the fact that we now keep death hidden from ourselves, Uh, we... uh, we hide the ill of course in hospitals the elderly are very often put in homes or facilities and the dead are of course not left in for public viewing for very long we are not being reminded of our own mortality so this leads to a failure to prioritize which activities provide a sense of meaning that might outlive our days. The more we remove the awareness of death or mortality from our concerns, the more we rely on what's called terror management. I love that name. I I just think it's the best death metal band name I could possibly think of, terror management. If I was in a death metal band, I would want it to be called terror management. We are human beings and that we do know that we are mortal, but we don't like to reflect on it or think about it. So we distract our attention from mental reminders of death. Let me say that again. Um, Our current culture... We tend to rely on terror management, which are all the distractions that uh, pull our attention away from our own mortality. And all of those things that help distract us have very little to do with meaning. They actually very often are things that just feel good or have very quick rewards to them. Whereas denying death makes one chase after Happiness and sensual pleasure, living in direct confrontation with mortality does the opposite. It leads us to ask questions associated with what acts of mine are of the greatest value. Now, uh, finally, uh, in the Dharma, happiness is associated with the word Sukha as opposed to dukkha, which is suffering. Happiness is sukha, and it derives from resting one's attention on sensations that reliably bring about states of ease. So for example, if you want to be happy and experience pleasure, you focus your attention on some stimuli that's reliable, that can create a sense of rest, and ease of being. For me, when I do meditations where I just sit and listen to sounds, I can become extremely peaceful and happy. I wouldn't say that those meditations are deeply meaningful, but they definitely activate, as the Buddha noted in the Pali Canon, they raise one's happiness. On the other hand, there's in Pali, the Buddha's probably his original language. Uh, Meaning, Hetu, is associated with mental states that arise from heart qualities, ethical endeavors, acts that are done for the sake of others. And so meaning is directly associated with compassionate acts. Likewise, in the Dharma, the Buddha notes in the Maranasati death reflection suttas, that reflecting on one's mortality uh, requires that we one note that it can happen at any time, our death, and that in so doing, we'll eventually become aware of all of the selfish, self-centered qualities that deprive our life of meaning. So once again, the Buddha, like Heidegger, is saying that there's an inherent connection between reflecting on one's mortality, one's lack of guarantees, with a renewed concern of what gives my life a reason for being or a purpose that transcends simply meeting my survival needs. Positive psychology of which I uh, have read my fair share, uh, has some additional insights to what we've been talking about, which is, of course, in summary, basically, that what separates a meaningful life from other concerns is broad pro-social, pro-tribal acts. It's about giving rather than accruing rewards. If you give a bunch of students $20 and you tell half of them to give the $20 to somebody else and you tell the other half to spend it on themselves, about six months later, the people who are told to spend the money on themselves won't remember where they spent it and they won't have any noticeable cruel of uh, meaning or self-esteem Whereas those that are told to give the money away not only will remember with some detail who they gave the money to and why, but they also feel a great deal of meaning and uplift and a self-esteem from the giving of the act. And also, of course, another key theme is reflecting on one's mortality directly links to contemplation of what then makes my life of value or gives my life a a greater degree of resonance or or purpose. Now, positive psychology, the work of Lambert et al, that um, in reflecting on groups of people where we felt we belonged and benefited others actuates far greater degrees of meaningfulness than remembering times we received help from others. So once again, it's very clear that meaning derives from positive acts towards others. Maslow, a great forerunner of positive psychology, the hierarchy of needs at all, noted that self-expression, in other words, putting uh, internal states into external forms of creativity can imbue life with meaning. So, In addition to volunteerism or altruistic acts or doing things that benefit others, another way to accrue meaning is to find a passionate endeavor with the arts or music or any craft that creates a sense of expression. I actually could go on a little further, but in an effort to um, uh, maintain my voice, and uh, lead us through a meditation on this subject, and then to answer questions, I'm going to just put the talk to bed there. I hope there was something worth your consideration. And um, so now it's our time to find a really comfortable uh, seated position where we can actually come to a degree of rest and... uh, as always reminding you that if you'd like to support the work of your local tattooed Buddhist pastor, you can always Venmo Dharma punks with an X NYC or the PayPal buttons on that site. And uh, thank you for your, your uh, help therein. And so let's find that good balance in the body where, We just allow the back to uh, rest against if we're. uh, We don't have to actually rest it. A better way to put it is actually to have the head be balanced above the shoulders in alignment with. The sit bones. So when the sit bones, shoulders, and the ears are in a nice alignment, uh, very often that can allow us to release any clenching or ongoing tension in the muscles. Because when the body is balanced, you don't have to exert effort or energy into keeping yourself in a upright position. And just reeling back in your attention I like the analogy of um, someone's fishing. They reel back in the line. uh, And they're no longer trying to catch or grab onto things in the ocean. They're now bringing it back to... They're just reeling it back in. And so we're reeling our awareness away from concern for the external world and bringing our attention internally focused, which means it's like turning, imagine, turning the eyes around so that they now peer into the body. It's the awareness that now lights up sensations of the body. And everything in the outside world blurs or fades, becomes less distinct. And finding a way through internal awareness to achieve a state of relaxed attention is far more unconditional and reliable than any practice that demands we get that sense of ease from the world around us. The world around us is unpredictable. It very often will not have the factors or uh, sensations or impressions that make us feel very relaxed. But if we close our eyes and focus our attentions internally, and therein can uh, accommodate ease and restful attention, Uh, generally that's a practice that is far more available and reliable and will not let us down. One way to derive a sense of relaxed attention from internal sensations is to scan the body for sensations associated with something that is soothing or calming. So for some people it can be the sensation of the breath, perhaps the chest or the abdomen expanding and releasing associated with inhalation and exhalation. For other people it might not be the breath, For some, it might be the sensations in the palms of one's hand might feel very soothing and warm. Just paying attention to the aliveness in the hands and slowly spreading those sensations up the arms. For some, an internal practice might be visualizing with one's internal capacity to imagine places or people. You visualize a place that's associated with safety, So it could be a beach or a place in the country, nature. It could be companionship with the loved. When we close our eyes, bring our attention internally, we can then visualize sources of safety. Or internally, with the eyes closed, we might repeat a very simple phrase. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. Or... May all beings be peaceful, free of suffering. So choose a practice that, or a contemplation, as it were, that is Easeful. And just when you find that practice, just see if you can relax all the tension in your neck, the shoulders. You could take a nice full in-breath, and then with the out, the exhalation, the out-breath, just release, drop. Just allow the body to just let go, allow your balance to keep you upright. And we'll just stay with our practice for a little while. And so, for the second part of the meditation, I'm going to lead a very basic uh, reflection on one's mortality and how that might link with a sense of uncovering or discerning what provides meaning and purpose in life so one of the most profound practice of the dharma is the five daily recollections or reflections and they go like this i am of the nature to grow old I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. I am of the nature to be separated from things that bring pleasure. And all that will remain, all that really matters, are the qualities of my actions. All that remains and really matters are the qualities of my actions. So, if I repeat that, I'm of the nature to grow old. I'm of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. I am of the nature to be separated from that which brings pleasure, and all that remains and really matters are the qualities of my actions. The quality of my actions. What does that bring to mind? Don't try to figure it out. Just let those words evoke in us some image, some activity that we've engaged in some experience from our life or experiences. When we repeat these recollections, what arises from the unconscious associative circuitry of the brain Then bringing our attention to the breath and the body, just the arising and falling of the inhalation, the exhalation. The second contemplation is to remind ourselves one day this body will breathe no more. One day this body will exhale and not follow, will not be followed with an inhalation. And just knowing this, knowing this as a fact, what experiences, acts, do we want to be defined by? What activity do we want? Uh, would we want other people to know us by? an additional contemplation can be visualizing an actuation of our highest sense of self whether you can visualize this or just have a sense of what this evolved or most beneficial kind self would be like with all of the attributes associated with self-actualization, wisdom, confidence, care, benevolence? What actions or activities would this evolve self be engaged in, what would it find to be most important? So, if any of these contemplations, without overthinking them, if any priorities or clarity of what is most important came to mind, it would be worth then prioritizing those endeavors if we want to create a sense of meaning and purpose to add resilience and a sense of value to our lives.